We're going to look at Luke chapter 5 and starting in verse number uh, 17. Luke chapter 5, verse number 17. We will read down through verse number 26. 26. Verse 17 says, And it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed, a bed, a man which was taken with a palsy. A palsy is just a it's just another word for saying a, he was paralyzed. He had paralysis. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the, the tiling which, uh, with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether is, whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he, he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And when they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and they were all amazed and glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to meet together as a church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for the presence of, uh, of Christ with us, the Spirit of Christ in us, as has been uh, sung about. Uh, at least a couple times here this evening. Lord, thank you that you are with us. And Lord, as we meet together to look at your word, as we study what your word says in these uh, several verses here, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us and teach us. You would help us to see the truth plain uh, and help us to receive it. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in everything that's done, especially that the name of Christ would be exalted. And uh, Lord, I just, I don't know what the needs are of your people here this evening. I don't know how this message might relate to what those needs might be, but Lord, I ask you to please give wisdom and grace to help me to say what you want to be said, and I pray that you would minister to and give grace for those needs, to meet those needs, give direction and help and guidance and strength, and Lord, we just commit it to you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you see in this story, this is a, 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 common, a common story. Most, most, this is mentioned at, I think, all three Gospels. And uh, you have this picture of this big crowd that's inside this house. And uh, oftentimes when I, read, when I read stuff like this coming from, you know, everything that my experience is, you think of, a, you think of this big crowd of, a, a, inside this house like you think of maybe your own house. And, 
and uh, you know the all the people are inside and they're kind of overflowing out into the the yard and you see these men carrying this man on a on a it says here a couch is his bed here and and they uh, they take him up to the roof because there's no way to get in and you know you picture them taking off the tiles of the roof and you know you got this kind of this uh, pitched roof in your mind and you got thinking about how they're tearing up the roof pulling off the shingles and throwing them off the edge, edge of the roof so they can lower lower this man down and you know I, I've even had this picture of this a man and he's laying literally on a literal couch and have ropes on both ends and they're lowering a couch down and that's the way we view it but that's not the way this was at all that's not the way this was at all the houses in this day were houses in which uh, there, were, there was basically just one way into the house. There was a door, obviously, and maybe a window, but there was just one way into the house, and this would have been house, a house made of, of uh, like mud, you know, kind of, uh, or stone, something like that. And there would be one way in, and you'd go into a room that was kind of like a guest room, and then in the interior of the house, kind of around the, the perimeter of the house, on the inside, there were rooms for different things, and of course, there were different kinds, but the, the main gist is that in the center of the house, there would be a, and this is much different than what we would be used to, there would be a, an open room where families could have meals and things like that. And in this open room, it would be open to the sky, right? In this center, it would be, it would be open to the sky. And of course, the obvious thing, obvious uh, problem with that kind of setup is it allows a lot of airflow and that kind of thing, but it also is subject to the weather. And so what they would do is they would, they would take these, they would take uh, different things, different materials, but the, uh, basically like a mat or canvas or something of that, of that nature, and they would, they would unroll it over this gap on the roof because the roof was flat, right? So you could walk around the edge of the roof, and then in the center it would be open. And so they would unroll this tiling across that to protect from the weather and, and those kinds of things. But that's what these, that's, these people go up onto the roof, and this is what they're removing. So I kind of want to set the stage for you as we look at it so that you don't have in your mind the same thing as I have, have in my mind. And the man's bed, his couch, was not like, you know, the love seat at your house here. Or not, it certainly wasn't like your queen size or king size bed complete with frame. You know, the 400-pound bed lowered uh, from the roof down on... No, this would, this would have basically been a, a pillow and a blanket, basically. And, uh, and so they lower this man down. They, they don't tear the house, the, the permanently damage the house or anything like that. They're just moving it over so that they can get to where Jesus is in that center uh, kind of court in the center of the house. So let's look at, uh, at verse number 18. Now we know that the Pharisees and the scribes are there, and we know wherever they are, there's, there's trouble. You know, Miss um, Pam's saying wherever Jesus is, it's heaven there, right? Well, wherever the Pharisees were, it was not heaven. It was trouble, and this is no exception. And so verse 18 says this, And behold, men brought in a, 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 bought, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and lay him before him, before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. Now, 
There's just a couple kind of main things I want to cover as we look at this, this passage here. And the first one is that the palsied man, the, the, the paralyzed man, is a, is a man that he's a type or a figure of a person who is crippled, but not in body, but crippled by sin. And this is a, a pretty obvious uh, application of this. But this man is a man who can't walk. He can't go to the house. He has to have help. And it's similar to a person who is, spiritually speaking, who is, this man is permanently crippled in body. There is no hope for him to be healed by doctors. He is, and I'm reading between the lines, I admit that, a little bit. But this man is, he's permanently crippled. He's broken. His body is, is not the way it's supposed to be naturally. His body has, has problems. And it's in the same way that sin has crippled us. And see, the thing is, most people view, we view sin as not something that is crippling, but just kind of like a passing cold or some, one of these, one of these uh, flus or things that have gone through our church here recently. That's the way we often view sin. But actually, sin is not like, it's not like a, a cold that's passed from person to person that you have for a few days and you get over it. No, sin is more like a crippling debilitating effect upon your life, there is no hope for cure of it. And that's, this is, in, in the physical sense, a good picture of the reality in the spiritual sense. And, of course, the world has a different view of sin altogether and what it is and how pervasive and profound and how serious of a matter it is. But when, when you say, when, when when God says that someone is a sinner, this is, not, this is not to say, well, he's, you know, he has a few problems or a few faults. No, this is to say he is a holy, broken, and corrupt individual. He is crippled, spiritually speaking. He had a spiritual infirmity that prevented him from seeking the Lord. You see, physically, he could not go to where Jesus was to get healing. And spiritually speaking, uh, that's, that's, the way, that's what sin does to us. It so cripples us that we will not go to Christ, and therefore we could, we could say we can't, because we won't. We won't. It, sin breaks us. Sin cripples us. And that's where we all were in that time before we knew the Lord. And of course, this man, as a result of his, his, uh, his, his state, it was required that others help him. He needed Help. In other words, he needed other people to bring him to Jesus because he wasn't going on his own. He just wasn't going on his own. He didn't have that, that capability. He was, he was, his body was too, too, too uh, handicapped to do that. So he needed others to help him. He could not go to, to Jesus unassisted. You know what? We didn't either. When we came to Christ, we did not come to Christ on our own power. That's for sure. God was working in us, but primarily and initially, He was working through other people to bring us to Christ. And it just goes back to this principle that every one of us that has believed in Christ has believed in Christ by means of what we might call human instrumentality. God has chosen to use people. You say, well, I, I, no one witnessed to me. I read a gospel tract. Well, somebody wrote that gospel tract, right? God uses people. 
You know what? There are people out there that do not yet know the Lord, but will know the Lord, and they're going to know the Lord, hopefully, by means of you helping them to Jesus. They need your help. They need my help to get to Jesus. And if we just, if we just sit back and we just, you know, remember, they're crippled. They're crippled. They, they, they need help. You think of the, the Ethiopian eunuch is the most obvious example, and he was riding in his chariot, and, he, and, and uh, Philip asked him, you know, understandest thou what thou readest? And what was his answer? How can I, except some man should guide me? He understood. I don't get this. I'm not, I, I'm not understanding this. And that's, that's, that's where we come in. This is our ministry as believers. Furthermore, we see also because of verse number 20, Jesus said to him, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. We see that he was a man who was also in need of forgiveness. And we'll look at that a little bit more in just a little bit. But suffice it to say that physically speaking, he was crippled and he was going to die crippled if someone did not intervene and help him. And that's, that's the problem. You know, uh, Pastor Tim Perry and I have been kind of collaborating to write a gospel tract. And one of the things that we've been kind of emphasizing in this gospel tract is this concept of how that, you know, oftentimes we view salvation as basically, you know, we, in other words, we try to put people in fear of when they die. And that's a valid fear to have. And many of us, myself included, you know, when I, the day that I trusted in Christ, you know, there was a certain fear that I was going to, I was going to die and I was going to go to hell because of my sin, right? But here's the, before you get to that point, you get here at the present. Before you get to the future, you have to look at the present. And the present is we're crippled. And if we die crippled, we're crippled by sin. And if we, just like the Lord said, if ye that if you believe not in me, in me, ye shall die in your sin. See, they were in their sin at present. And when you die, you just die in that condition and that the result is you go to, to hell. But then he had friends. Commentators, they say he had four friends. The Bible doesn't say that, but he did have friends. But notice that the friends were whole. The friends were not crippled. And I know you can take this a little too far, but, uh, but the friends picture you and they picture me. We are people who have come to know the Lord already. We are whole. Spiritually speaking, we are whole. We have been forgiven. We are clean. We know the Lord. And it is our job to help those who, who are crippled, to help those who are not whole. He had friends who are whole and they used their wholeness the fact that they knew the Lord, to bring others to the Lord. But they themselves, these friends, these, these men in themselves had no power at all to heal, heal this man at all. So they, they had to bring him to Jesus. And that's ultimately the goal of our evangelism. Now, this is kind of the, the, basic, the basic kind of typology. You see these men bringing a man to Jesus now this is not. I don't. I think. I think you would be. You. It would be a little bit of a stretch to compare what these men are doing, uh, how that they brought this crippled man, this this paralytic man, to Jesus, the same as as you might say we bring someone who who we're witnessing to to church. Although that's that's perfectly okay, but really it's a it's a step above that. 
it's, it's about bringing, bringing a man who needs the Lord to the Lord. To the Lord. Because the Lord, the church, the church is, is a fine place for someone to get exposed to the truth. But, but more than the church, those that do not have God need God. You know what? All of us ought to be capable. All of, a, all of us ought to be capable of bringing someone to Jesus. We ought, to, we ought to be able and competent and have enough knowledge and understanding of the Scripture to be able to do that. We ought, we ought to. In fact, that's our, that's our job. That's our function with these that, that need the Lord like we see in this example here. But look at verse number 20. Verse 19 says they, they removed the tiling, they let the, the, uh, the man down before Jesus so they did something that was really extraordinary here. And, and verse 20 says, And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. So what Jesus, what is, it, what is being emphasized here is not, as you might compare it to like say verse 12 through verse 16, which is the story of the, how Jesus cleansed the leper. There's no mention of friends in that case. That's a, a kind of a different picture, a different illustration. But in this case, what's being emphasized is not the faith of the man who's paralyzed, but the faith of the friends who brought the man who was paralyzed. He says, when he saw their faith. That's plural. So he's referring to the friends and probably the man who was on, on the couch also. But there's a few things we can, we can draw from this that I think are important about these men's faith. The first thing is this. The men that brought their paralytic friend had enough faith to try. You know, as I, I'll just say all three and then I want to kind of, kind of give you, give you a, kind of a, an illustration of what I mean. So these men had enough faith I don't know how much faith they had, but they had enough. It rose to the level high enough and strong enough that they were willing to exert the effort to get this man to Jesus. All right? They had enough faith to do that. The second thing, notice that in verse number 21, I'm sorry, verse number, um, verse number 19, and when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude. They were met with opposition and difficulty. But you know what? Remember, Jesus is noting their faith. Okay? So they had enough faith to try, and then they had it, and then met with having met with difficulty, they had enough faith to persist. That's another kind of weak link in the chain. And then last, they had enough faith to be creative. So having met with difficulty, they persisted and their faith to get this man to Jesus, to serve this man in this way, was strong enough such that they found a way. They thought outside the box in order to serve the Lord and to serve this man whom they're serving. Now, here's, here's, here's the problem with our faith. Now, you think about our evangelism. You think about our personal witness to others, both as individuals and as a church together. You know, it takes some faith 
for us to think, well, this is worthwhile, right? This is worthwhile. This is what God wants us to do, to tell others about Jesus. This is worthwhile. This matters. This, it has eternal benefit. That's, that's the thought process of faith. When G, we, we take what Jesus said, how he told us that we would be witnesses to all nations, to preach the gospel to every creature, to teach all, all of those things in the Great Commission. We, we have all of those various statements, but it's one thing to take them, uh, see them in the Bible and then to take those statements and in faith embrace those and act on those. That's a little bit of faith required to actually try, just like these men. But then oftentimes in, when we're trying to witness to someone or we're trying to witness as a church, we meet with difficulty. And at that point, when we meet with difficulty, we, we say, well, this is hard. And a little bit of weak faith will turn back at that point. Well, you know, we tried. It just, it just didn't work out. But see, that is weak faith. Because weak faith is the faith that turns back when things are hard. And I'm talking about telling other people about Jesus. We get discouraged because it's hard or because we don't see the result we hope to see. And so we kind of turn back. But then these men also had creativity. Met with difficulty, their faith caused them to persist, to keep on, even though it was hard. And here's the thing. A, weak, a person with a weak faith would see this house. He would see the, the people spilling out into the courtyard of the house, spilling out probably into the street. And they're trying, you know, I mean, they're not going in as an individual. There's several men and they have this other guy who's laying on a, laying on a cot, basically. And they're literally carrying, I mean, there's no way, I mean, a little narrow door, there's no way they're going to be able to get into that house. A weak, at, at that point, weak faith would have been like, well, oh well, you know, there's just too many people here to get in. You know, truth is, though, even if we're able to get to them, it probably wouldn't have mattered anyway. I mean, they probably wouldn't have worked out, probably couldn't have helped him. That's what weak faith says. It's no use, it's too hard. And so here's what happens. Our creativity to serve God dies with weak faith. But on the other hand, when our faith is strong, we start to get creative. Let me give you an, an example of this. When we were in Cambodia, I noticed that I noticed that there were a lot of these garment factories. I might have mentioned this the other night, uh, the, the last time that, that I preached, but there were these garment factories. I mean, Cambodia has hundreds of garment factories, it seems. I mean, they're everywhere. And uh, they have mostly women that work there and they, they go and they, and, and they work there for a shift, eight or 10 hours, 12 hours or whatever. And when they, when they come out, the bell rings, they come flowing out. I mean, thousands upon thousands, rivers of people come, come out of the same entrance to get on these buses that take them back to their various villages. And having seen that, I thought to myself, you know what? That'd be a really good place to like do some evangelism. And then I also thought about, well, uh, you know, I didn't want to just, we handed out tracts sometimes, but I, I wanted to do something a little bit more. So, I, so the Lord put upon our hearts to, to make these video um, 
uh, testimonies where these Cambodian people gave, uh, were, we recorded these people, we knew these people personally, and we recorded them giving their testimony how that though they were raised as a Buddhist in, in Cambodia and, and all of that, they, they came to know Christ and they described that. And we videoed it and then we put those eight videos on, on DVDs, which they still use there in Cambodia sometimes. And we burned thousands. We had trunks. Our kids helped us. We have a, a DVD duplicator. One, In fact, the same missionary that's taking the stuff to the Browns, he brought a DVD duplicator from America so that we could duplicate DVDs. And our kids did, did that most of the time between their subjects in school. And we filled up totes, large totes of DVDs full to the top with DVDs. And then we would take those totes out to these garment factories and when the shift change came and all those people came out, we would hand those things out. It, it, literally, 15 minutes, they're gone. You know what that was? That was God putting something in our heart that was creative. Outside the box. You see, in that house, you think about that. There's only one entrance to that house. I mean, who's going to go up on the roof of somebody else's house? But you know what? Sometimes if we're going to reach other people, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to think outside the box. Of course, stay within Scripture, but we're going to have to think outside the box. That faith is going to have to be generated enough that it, 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 it encourages us and motivates us to do things that maybe we wouldn't normally do, that we had never done before. You know, there's a lot of different ways to reach people in Greenville, South Carolina. And we know the typical ways, and the typical ways are still good. It's not like they're bad. But there's other things we can do also. And you know what? The only limit to our creativity in that is the limit of our faith. Because sometimes when we have an idea, we're like, ah, that probably won't work. You know, Sister Amy's done some stuff like that, kind of done stuff outside the box on her own. And you know what? Each one of us might have an idea. Ideas are awesome. These guys had an idea, and their faith put it into practice. You see it? We can do that. You can do that when you're reaching someone else. And uh, that's, that's why we need to think about, look, if we're serving God, let's, let's do it with all our heart, with all our faith, with all our creativity. What's the best way to reach people? All right, well, if this doesn't work, let's try this. Well, if that don't work, let's try something else. The point is the faith must motivate us to do that and not to give up because, oh, man, it's hard. Oh, well, this isn't the way it's always been done or this isn't the, this isn't the, the easiest way. Or the, These guys, they were bold. They went up on that. They, on, the houses were connected oftentimes in, in the first century like that, and they would, go, they would find access to one of the roofs, and they could go from roof to roof to roof like in Aladdin. And then they could go find the roof where they want to be and they unroll that thing. Creativity. If those guys had just sat in their house and with their paralyzed friend and said, you know, Jesus could heal him, that wouldn't have done him any good. They needed their faith to act. Look at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, man... Thy sins are forgiven thee. Forgiveness. You know, there's a lot of ways to describe salvation as it relates to sin. One of the primary ways you might describe salvation is before I was dirty or defiled, and now I'm clean. Before I was dead, 
and now I'm alive, right? You, you, there's different ways. Before I was lost, now I'm found. And all of those things are valid in biblical ways to describe salvation. But in this case, forgiveness cuts out its own little niche to describe, you know, the, the one, one aspect of salvation that I think is very important. And it's especially important in this context because they're arguing or, or the, the Pharisees find fault with the Lord mentioning forgiveness. Here's some, some things about forgiveness that I think it would be good if we use this when we witness to people. Forgiveness as it relates to salvation is a, I know I'm going to use this term, but I'll explain it. It's a relational concept. What do I mean by that? In other words, when you use the term forgiveness, you're implying something. You're implying there's at least three things present. There's the offender, right? There is the offended person. And then there is the transgression or the offense. When you say forgiveness, someone is forgiven, you're implying all three of those things. That, that's what's in that word. And that's kind of a unique way to describe salvation. When we think about the offender, that's us, right? Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven thee. When we talk about the offender before, we're the, we are the offender. God does not offend us. We offend God. And we do so by number three, which is the offense. So we are the offender. God is the offended one. We, he is the one who we have wronged. And you know what? And you think about the word uh, forgiveness. Because there is a person who has been offended, it is required that that same person forgive. You see how it's personal? It's relational. God grants forgiveness. So when you talk about forgiveness, you're talking about a breach in a relationship as a result of an offense or a trespass. You know, and, and then that, as I said, we talk, when we talk about number three, which is the offense, what we have done to wrong God. You know, oftentimes we characterize sin as, well, wrong. We say these general kind of nebulous terms like, well, it's wrong or it's immoral. And that's all true, but that doesn't catch the relational part of it. What is sin? Can somebody give me a good biblical definition of sin? Sin is the what? Yes, sir. Violating God's law. Exactly. Sin is the transgression of the law. So when you talk about forgiveness, what you're talking about is a man, the offender, that's me, has, has willfully offended another party by breaking the law of God. He has offended God. That relationship is broken because he has offended God. God is angry with him. There is a breach. It's not just a wrong or a fault or immoral. No, it is an offense to God. And so if we're going to be forgiven, that relationship to God must be fixed. That's why it's important when we witness to people... We, we, we explain that sin is not just general. Sin is against God. 
And, you know, we can do things. We can, we can go through our liturgy. We can have our church. We can make ourselves feel better. We can do good in hopes to cover the, the evil that we've done. But that doesn't fix the offense to God. We make ourselves feel better. Sometimes we might say, well, I'll forgive myself. But you still have a breach before God. And so that tells us forgiveness can only be granted by God himself. You can't make it right. Your buddy can't make it right. Our church can't make it right. God alone grants forgiveness. That is kind of the core idea of forgiveness, and here's why it's important. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know what? They were right. Look, hold your place here, and really quick, look at Isaiah chapter number 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Look at three verses in Isaiah to kind of illustrate this. Verse number, excuse me, Isaiah 43, verse number 25. The Lord speaking says this, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. You know what this is? This is the offended party saying, I will forgive you. You know what? Only the offended party has the right to do that. Look at chapter 44, verse number 22. It says this, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. So if a sin is the transgression or the violation of God's law, that means only God can pardon it because it's His law. So when, we talk, when we're witnessing to people, we're trying to bring people to Jesus, we need to make them understand. This is one of the reasons why all of the good things they do and all of the counseling, whatever they might try to, 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 to utilize to make themselves feel better, will do nothing to right a relationship that is breached with God. And if we want forgiveness, we must come to God as He determines, right? One more verse in Isaiah says this, chapter 55, verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Nobody can pardon a sinner in God's place, because he is the offended party. So we go back to our text here, and he says, they say, who is this that speaketh the blasphemy? So it is true what they said. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. That is an Old Testament truth. God alone has the prerogative to forgive sins. So looking at Christ as a man, they, they think he's just, a, just another guy. 
They say, he, this man, is taking a prerogative, prerogative of God upon himself. And that's why they accused him of blasphemy. Now, look down at the next verse. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, that alone proves his deity, right? That's also a prerogative of God, which is to know the thoughts of man. Second Chronicles, I wrote down Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse, if you want to look at it later, verse 30. Second Chronicles 6, 6.30 says that expressly, that only God knows the thoughts of man. But Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether is, whether is easier, to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say rise up and walk? That's confusing because I, I think the commentary's got it wrong here. Which one's easier? We're not talking about the, the ease to speak the words. But in this case, which, which one of these two statements, thy sins be forgiven thee or rise up and walk, which one of those would have caused Jesus less trouble? Rise up and walk, right? Because he did that a lot. But it was when he said, thy sins be forgiven thee, that they caught that they thought they had him because it sounded like blasphemy. But you know what? He said, thy sins be forgiven thee on purpose. That's what he says. Look at the text. Whether, verse 23, whether is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say rise up and walk. Verse 24, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He saith unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thy house. So here, here, here is what I want you to understand. You know, there are go-to verses that describe the deity of Christ. You know, you talk about that, that you know, you ought to know a good five or ten verses Go-to verses that describe that Jesus, who the identity of Christ is. You ought to know John 10, 30, John 20, 28, John 1, 1. You, know, you ought to know those go-to verses. And you ought to have the concepts of those verses in your, in your heart and mind. But when you read your Bible, you'll find a lot more than just those. Here we have Jesus who is taking a prerogative that is given to God alone upon himself. That of forgiveness. And those around him understand what he's doing. He's, he is saying, I am God. That's the gist of what he's saying. And he says, I could have said it a lot easier. I could have said, rise up and walk. But no, he said, I, I said on purpose, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then to prove what I just said, I'm going to heal this man so it's undeniable that I have power to do it. So what Jesus did is he gave a sign to prove his word. That's what happened. Now, I know you read the New Testament, you read about all these, all these sick people that get healed and all these things. And just like Pastor Stewart said this morning, you know, WWJD and people, they, build a whole, they have built a whole religion on what they think is what Jesus did. You know what? They build hospitals and they have these, all these humanitarian organizations. You know, you can go to the Adventist hospital and the Baptist hospital and the Methodist hospital, Presbyterian. You know, all that is based upon this right here. But you know what? There were no hospitals here. Most of the time when Jesus is healing people and showing signs and miracles, you know why he's doing it? 
Not to set some example that we need to be, we need to build a hospital. No. What he's doing is he is showing a sign to verify what he is saying. If you remember that, it'll help you when you read the Bible. It'll help you get some of these other things, uh, not, not let you get so confused. But with this miracle, Jesus said, I have power to forgive sins, and I'm going to prove it. You know, and this is also, on a side note, this is also why it's totally absurd for anybody, anybody wearing any kind of clothing in any kind of religious capacity to look at any other human being and say, you're forgiven. My child, you're forgiven. We have no power to do that. And the only reason Jesus did it is because Jesus himself had power to do it. And he did not bequeath or somehow uh, uh, pass that power and authority on to us. Jesus has power to forgive sin. Now bring it up to today. He has power to forgive sin. And so the scripture says, he is able to save to the uttermost. Now I'm talking about now, in 2023, all that come unto God by him. You see that? He had power to forgive sin when he was on earth. He retains that power to forgive sin now. And so when we, as we saw at the beginning, when we endeavor by faith in humble, faithful obedience to the Lord to bring people to Jesus, we bring people to Jesus knowing that if they come to Him on His terms and they repent and believe the gospel, He can forgive them. In other words, He has the authority to say, You offended me, but I am clearing you. And he is the only one that has that power. So in this passage, to close, in this passage, we see three things that demonstrate Christ's deity. We see the power to forgive sins, the power to heal the body, and the power to know the thoughts of man. So the Lord used what was a, uh, the Lord used, think about, He used the faith of these men who brought this paralyzed man to Him. They persisted. They were creative. They were going to find a way to bring that man to Jesus. They had faith. And the Lord used this uh, opportunity and circumstance to demonstrate something about Himself and something about forgiveness, and something about faith, and something about his identity, all through this example. Let's pray.